you don't try to program the machine directly, right, saying do this, don't do that. What you do is you say, machine, I would like you to act the way that I would tell you to act if I were as smart and as capable as you are. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. On today's podcast, we're talking about the future of artificial intelligence. Our guest is Scott Roy, Senior Staff Engineer at Google. He also happens to be my favorite brother-in-law. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Welcome, Scott Roy, to the show. Scott is my brother-in-law. He is also senior staff engineer at Google. One of his specialties is artificial intelligence. And today we are going to uh, focus on this topic. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to the show, Scott. As my son-in-law, I am proud to say that you're also married to my daughter. Yes. <laughs> I also am proud to be married to your daughter. <laughs> uh, you've, you've had many achievements. This is definitely one of your most important. Uh, it's uh, quite a special life I live, working at Google and being married to a rabbi. It's an interesting combination. Yes, I'd like to get into that. Hmm. But first, Scott, could you please tell me what is artificial intelligence? I would say artificial intelligence is the quest to try to make machines do all the things that we do as people so effortlessly and get them to do them in a very human-like way. So the particular things that I work on, for example, are all around language. So it's understanding language and generating language and trying to make it so we can talk to our computers uh, the same way that we would talk to a person. And you know, we as people, we don't even consciously think about how we understand language it just comes naturally and effortlessly and yet when you try to get a machine to do this you realize just how maddeningly complicated it is uh, to get everything right so just as some examples so uh, the particular problem that i work on is on generating language right so when you're you know when you do a google search right you search for something like uh you know weather you know, weather in San Francisco. You know, on the Google search results page, you know, we can show you a beautiful uh, weather forecast, you know, you know, probably hour by hour with the precipitation and things like that. But uh, when you're using a device like Google Home, 
right? Or you're on your phone and you're in the car and you can't actually look at a screen, this is where we actually need to be able to use language, right? So we need to be able to turn that into words. And it's the same, you know, thing that, you know, Siri uh, uses for Apple, that, you know, Alexa uses for Amazon. Uh, so with Google, this is all with what we call the Google Assistant in Google Home. And so we need to be able to say something like, uh, it's sunny and beautiful, uh, 83 degrees today in San Francisco. And the challenge in trying if to... Only. If only, yes. Today we have very poor air quality. It's been really quite a weekend uh, you know, in the whole Bay Area with the fires they're having up north. Um, but the, the challenge with you know, trying to generate language like this, and this, again, are the subtleties that we're, just, we're not even really aware of as humans until we think about it. So the way that I, I say what that temperature is changes depending on the location. So I have to say it's 83 degrees in San Francisco, right, where I use the preposition in and then just say the name of the city. But if I had a different location, I would say it differently. So I would say it's 73 degrees at the beach, mm -hmm. right, where I use a different preposition and now I have to put the word, you know, the in front of it. Right. right? Well, I mean, and I know even just from Italian, like when, when you're going uh, to a city you would say, A, like, I'm going a Chicago, you know, but if I'm going to Italy, it's in Italy. And so I can only imagine, you know, with if you're doing Bengali, Bengali is the one that, one of the ones you guys have been working on. This is what we're trying to do, right? So right now, you know, the Google Assistant speaks many languages, and we're constantly trying to get it to understand more languages. And so the challenge is producing fluent, natural, grammatical, you know, output, you know, language in all these different languages. And so the way we, we typically do this today is that we have, um, you know, lots of uh, human linguists, right? So lots of experts that understand how the language works and they can write down lots of rules that say, okay, this location you want to, you know, handle using this way of saying in and this you know, other location you want to handle, you know, using a different way. Um, but what we find is that it's, it's not a very scalable approach, right? So it works fine for English, it works fine for German and French and Italian, but when you start getting to languages like Bengali, there just there aren't linguists that we can really hire uh, to make this work very well. So what my particular... Why can't you hire linguists for Bengali? Uh, we probably can. I'm sure there, there are Bengali it's probably some, some pretty decently priced Bengali interpreters in... There, 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 there probably are, um, but we just, you know, we eventually, we, we reach the limits of being able to really uh, have experts write down rules to tell us how to do this. So what, what my particular team focuses on is uh, how we can use uh, techniques that are called deep learning to teach systems how to do this automatically, right? So we just show them lots and lots of examples of what it is that we'd like them to do. We show them lots of examples of sentences you know, in a language like Bengali, and they learn all these grammatical rules about how to actually produce uh, natural... So it's a combination of Google Translate and then using search data with different patterns. So are you going to be able to teach a person at United Airlines, a machine at United Airlines, to speak with a Filipino accent, accent when they answer the phone? I think the Filipinos have very good... They have a very good English accent. It does have sort of a, like a little bit of a particular, you can... Uh, so eventually, yes, right? So right now, right, you know, when you listen to the computer-generated voices, you know, they still sound very computer-generated, right? And they're getting more natural all the time. Um, so that's a problem known as, uh, you, know, you know, speech generation, right? Going from text, you know, some written form to the actual speech output. 
you know, there's various other teams at Google that are working on those parts of the problem, right? So to build, you know, something like the Google Assistant, uh, you know, there's a whole range of problems ranging from taking the speech of what the user says and understanding just what the words were that they said, right? So turning that into text and then actually understanding what those words mean, right? So what is it the user is trying to do? And then we have to search our backend systems to figure out what we believe the answer is. And we have to turn that into... What, what's harder, taking it in or spitting it back out as far as the language? Uh, there's there's different challenges in the two problems, right? So uh, typically when you're trying to, to generate the output, um, the range of what you need to be able to express is much smaller than what you typically need to be able to understand on the input side, right? So when, when humans say something, they can say anything, right? And so you have to be very good at understanding just about anything. But on the other hand, you don't need to be very precise in what you've understood them to say, right? So as long as you get roughly the things correct uh, and you can turn that into some reasonable search that gives you some reasonable results, uh, you're, you're probably okay, right? So you don't need to actually be perfect in, in understanding every nuance of what they said. And on the other hand, when, when we produce output, the, the range of what we need to produce is much smaller, but it needs to be very precise, right? So the, you know, humans are very unforgiving if we say something that's ungrammatical, right, or that sounds very unnatural, right? And so even though we, we don't need to be able to generate nearly as much as we need to be able to understand, uh, we need to be able to do it um, you know, at very high precision, right, so that it actually sounds good. Scott, to how members. did you get into this field? Have you always been interested in artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, when I was when I was little, right, we didn't really have computers just yet. So I was born in 1967, and so you know, at that point, it was still you know, big mainframe computers. You know, the the mini computers of the 1970s were just coming coming around. But so my very first exposure to computers was when my my dad bought a uh, one of the very first personal computers. Uh, a Radio Shack TRS-80. Uh, this was probably, I don't know, 76, 77. I forget the exact, you know, the exact year. But he brought home this computer and, you know, he set it up and I like, you know, open up the instruction manual. It came with some instruction manual that kind of explained how to, how to program and how to use it. And I read the, you know, the little intro that starts you and it has you write a little two-line basic program and you run the program and it says, you know, hi, what's your name? <laughs> you know, I type my name this is what year? This is probably. <coughs> excuse me. This is probably. Are you <laughs> crying right now? Laughing and crying. Why? Why? Why does this affect you like that? Yeah. Yeah. I get. I get very emotional when I think about you know kind of the things that inspired me to do the work that I'm doing. So. Yeah. So this story. So this was. This was. This was. You know, kind of my very first exposure to this. You know, on the computer, it talked to me. You know, I typed in my name and it said, you know, hi Scott. And just, you know, the thought that these things could use words, you know, not just numbers, was just miraculous. <clears throat> Sorry. Anyhow, so I remember I ran out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I ran, I ran downstairs to find my brother. I'm like, Mark, Mark, you got to come see this. This is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and how old were you? <clears throat> I was, I don't know, nine or ten, something okay. like that. So, uh -huh. you know, so I bring my brother up there, uh -huh. you know, and I run the program for him. He types his name, <laughs> and he... He looks at it and he's just like, huh. <laughs> he just walks off. So, so clearly we had, we had very different reactions to that. But, you know, my... And today he is? Uh, today he's a doctor, so he's a radiologist. So he went, he went a very different path. But, you know, for me, that, that very first moment, that very first program, just it, it really planted in me a desire and today, to see, can I make these things. Computers think? are reading, are checking uh, uh, breast x-rays or... 
They are. So they're actually getting quite good at reading, you know, x-rays and you know, all the things that radiologists traditionally do. So when, when you look at the kinds of things that, you know, the computers are good at right now. So uh, one of the things that we've, we've really, I think, done quite well in the last 10 years, right, is we've figured out how to use these deep learning techniques for perceptual tasks, right? So perceptual tasks are things like speech recognition, right? So when you can say something, we can translate that to words. And then also image understanding, right, where we can actually show them pictures. So for example, on Google Photos, right, you can do something like search for uh, beach, right? And it will actually go through all your photos that you've uploaded and it will show That's you amazing. all the scenes of beaches because it actually has some understanding about how to figure that out, mm-hmm. right? Or you can type, you know, like, you know, dog or something like that, right? And again, it'll show you like all these, these pictures of your dog. So one of the places that they're applying this is indeed in, in medicine, right? So there's lots of uses, you know, for medicine. And so the things that traditionally, you know, takes radiologists years and years and years to learn, the machines are actually getting better and better and better at doing that. So, I asked my brother about this, you know, whether he's... Right, so you have machines checking for breast cancer Mm -hmm. that are supposedly, in some cases, better, and in some cases, 95% as good. Mm -hmm. What does he say about that? Yeah, his his experience with it is that so far they're not as good as the the doctors, which I think is correct, right? So, you know, typically when we look at how good these systems do, there's a trade-off um, between what we often call precision on the one hand, which is when it makes a diagnosis. So, for in your breast cancer example, it says, you know, yes, this this image shows uh, you know breast cancer. You know, how often is it correct? versus what we often call the recall rate, which is if you show it pictures where you know that the person was actually diagnosed with breast cancer and that was the correct diagnosis, how often does it actually spot that? And so typically there's a trade-off. That is, you want the precision to go up, right? So it's it's more and more confident when it says, yes, that that's actually the correct answer. Then the recall rate of how often when you show it something where there really is you know, breast cancer, it's able to, to spot it, goes down. And so what you find with, you know, real, you know, and so you can plot this on a curve, and you know, we don't have visuals here, so I can't draw it, but you can plot it on a curve where you have precision on one axis and recall on the other, and so you can envision a curve that's, you know, very high here, and then as the precision goes up, the recall rate drops. And so usually you, you kind of operate around the knee of that curve where you're, you're making some trade-off between these. But if you look at the curve for, say, a doctor, you know, versus what the machines can do, you know, their curve is usually strictly above and to the right what the machines can do, right? Meaning that they're both more precise and they're able to generate, you know, responses at a, you know, higher recall rate than, than the machines can. And so as the machines get better, though, their their curve kind of moves, you know, up toward what the human doctors can do. And so while today I think it's quite true that the radiologists are better than the machines, um, I would not place any bets, you know, in 20 years. I think the machines will be much better and, than the humans. And, well, you know, truthfully, even in, like, five years, they might already be much better than the humans. Well, what is what what is going to bring that about? Faster chips or uh, people to create the programming to do this? Yeah, it's a combination, right? So a lot of the advances that we've seen over the last 10 years, you know, are really just powered by faster hardware, right? So you look at the... Uh, you know, the way that we do this today. So again, the, the technique is called deep learning, and this is really, uh, you know, for those who've been around long enough, the same as, you know, what they called neural nets back in the 1980s. And, and in truth, it, it really hasn't changed all that much, right? You can look at the, you know, the architectures of how these machine learning models work today, and they're not really terribly different um, from what they were uh, 30 years ago. Um, but what's changed is that we can now run them on hardware 
that's you know probably a million times faster than the hardware that we had then. And what happens, and, and it's not just that we have faster hardware, we also have better data, right? So uh, the thing, you know, the fuel that really makes all this machine learning work is having lots and lots and lots of labeled examples, right? So lots and lots of cases, you know, in your cancer example, where you can show it an image and say, you know, here's where there's cancer and here's where there's not cancer. Um, and so what we find is that, you know, 30 years ago, it didn't matter how much data we had because we couldn't process even a fraction of it. But today, we actually have machines that are fast enough that we can really suck in all the data that we can give it. And what you find is that the more data you have, the more uh, parameters you can put into your models and the more, you know, computing power you can apply to it to actually compute what those parameter values should be. And this is what makes the performance get better and better and better. And you know, as we get more data, and as we have faster and faster machines, even without any real changes to the, the science of how it works, the machines are just going to get better and better and better at what they do. Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email at swarfcastpodcast at gmail.com. That's Swarfcast podcast at gmail.com. So the cancer uh, spotting is the upside of AI. But we've all seen the dystopia uh, books and movies about the downside, the dark side of AI. You seem to be optimistic about the future of what AI will do for mankind and for your children and your grandchildren. But doesn't it worry you about the the horrible uses of AI? Haven't you seen The Terminator? I have. It's an excellent movie, isn't it? Yeah, the first three, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the first two, the third one. So doesn't it scare you? Uh, It does, but it doesn't necessarily scare me any more than other science that we're pursuing. You look at all the science of what we're able to do with things like nanotechnology and biotech, you know, and all those things I think are uh, quite capable of improving life for all of us tremendously and quite capable of, you know, destroying life as we know it. Um, and so the trick, you know, the challenge I think for all of us as scientists and as a society is to figure out how to make sure we have the right safeguards so that we're more likely to go in a path that results in the Star Trek universe than in the Terminator universe. Um, I like that. I, I, am, I am truthfully quite hopeful, right? You know, because I feel like both the, uh, the concerns about how close we are to some kind of, you know, AI breakout, right, where the machines just suddenly both become much, much more intelligent than us and are actually, you know, malevolent in some way, um, I, I, don't, I don't think is actually very close. I think that's actually much further off than... Why do you say that? Um... Yeah, you know, mostly just as a researcher in the field, um, I feel like I have some sense of what the machines are doing and what they're not doing. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, especially with something like language, you know, it's very easy to look at when the machine says something and to believe it's more intelligent than it actually is, hmm. right? Because you know, we read this and okay, you know, this is it's like a looks, person. It's like a person. You know, it looks very human-like in its output, but you know, the truth is, and we saw this even with, like, the very first chatbot ever created, you know, this chatbot called Eliza by Joseph Weizenbaum, I think, yeah, I want to say 
more than 50 years ago. I can't quite remember when he wrote it. I think it was the early 60s. But um, the very simple algorithms, right, if they're producing sentences, we tend to imbue the computer with much more intelligence in actually producing those than it, than it really has. Um, and so my, my sense when I look at it is I think they're, they're quite good at discerning rules for you know, how to make things grammatical and how to pick which sentence is appropriate in a particular context. But then there's like the the chess computers, and mm -hmm. I mean clearly they're yeah those 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 have succeeded quite well. So you know at the moment you know the best chess computers are way way better than uh, the humans. You know so there's a chess championship going on right now, and uh, you know the, neither of those players would stand a chance against the best computers. But in would the world. that ruin chess? It hasn't, right? I mean, what you see is it's actually made chess better, right? Because what, what the computers show is they show new ideas that we haven't thought of before. <laughs> really? And it's actually, it's quite inspiring. I mean, I remember this, you know, most, uh, you know, vividly actually in backgammon, right? So, uh, so the, the very first... Backgammon? Yeah, yeah. So the very, the very first, you know, real, uh, yeah, I think, well-known, you know, strategy game that the computers, I think, were actually clearly better than the humans and you know, got some wide publicity because it was all based on machine learning. And all. I was backgammon. In when, like mid-'80s? This was the late-'90s. So this was you know, the mid-to-late-'90s. The mid this 90s. is the wonderful game on the back of checkerboards. Yes, exactly. exactly. So you, know, you play with dice, and you got to move your men around the, the board and all. And so it's, it's interesting, right, because there's some combination of you know, the luck of the dice, but you know, it's really it's basically a strategy game, right? You have to kind of you know, strategize to make sure that, you know, the that when luck comes, you're going to be ready for it, right? That's going to work in your advantage. You know, and there, you know, it reached a point where, uh, you know, in the late 90s, the the backgammon programs, you know, became as good as the best human players in the world. And what was interesting is that they didn't play exactly the same way as the best humans in the world, right? They actually played some, they had learned somewhat different strategies, mm -hmm. played somewhat different strategies. And so the humans, when they saw this, were delighted, right? Because it showed them new ways of thinking about the game, right? New ways of actually, uh, you know, playing and kind of plotting what to do. And I think you see the same things in chess. You see it now in Go, right? So Go was a tremendous breakthrough a couple of years ago. How about in Vegas? Uh, poker is actually, I I believe I'm, I'm not as current on the research, but I, I believe that the best poker players in the world are now actually computers, right? That they've really? just, they've they finally have created a program that can play Texas Hold'em and blackjack. Uh, uh, blackjack, I don't know as much about, right? But my my understanding is that there's you know less in the way of skill, right? So it's mostly a game of statistics and probabilities, and there, you know, certainly if you're allowed to. Uh, you know, do the equivalent of counting cards, right? So you right. Can make, well, I was, I was thinking play, if you can count you know, cards. There, my guess is that the the computers can play perfectly, right? And that they can certainly beat the house odds because you know we see card counters that are able to beat the house odds without without any real trouble, right? So you know, backgammon is a you know kind of a strange gambling thing where you have to actually restrict what the humans can do so that the house still has the edge that uh, that it needs to have. I think in all these things, you know, what we've seen is we've seen. Uh, you know, where the AI scientists are able to build systems that solve these problems, but they have yet to really build systems that really uh, have the same kind of general intelligence that we seem to have as humans, right? So if you want to take, you know, say the, the chess playing program and apply it to something new, you know, we can do it, but it still requires writing, you know, a bunch of code and, you know, finding data potentially to train the program. But um, will there be a robot eventually that will be able to make the code. I think so, yes. I mean, but, you know, the question is how far away we are from that, right? And, you know, what's interesting right, is that you, you talk to the, 
you know, the scientists, and no one really knows is the, is the basic answer, right? So you, you read, you know, various folks like, you know, Elon Musk or Stephen Hawking, right, and, you know, they're, you know, warning of doom and gloom and things like that. You read other people that, that say no, and, and the, the truth is, and, you know, my, my own sense is that just no one really knows. And, and you know, the, the things I look to to sort of, you know, to convince me of that, so I look at the history of computer Go, right? So Go is the, uh, you know, game, you know, from, you know, China and Japan and Korea, uh, similar to chess, so it's played with little black and white pieces. And there was a big sensation a couple of years ago when they finally built, you know, a program that could actually beat the. You know, the that was what you were working on, right? Yeah, it's, it's been a hobby of mine forever. Was trying to write a Go program, but you know, these folks they they solved the problem. They did it in a tremendous way. It's actually very impressive seeing what uh, what the DeepMind team uh, building AlphaGo was able to do. Um, but if you look at the history of people trying to write Go programs, what you see is a history of discontinuous jumps in capability, right? So for a very long time, the programs were awful and no one had any real understanding of how to make them better. And uh, then there was a big breakthrough in you know, the early 2000s when there was a technique called Monte Carlo tree search that was invented. Uh, and this for the first time actually made the programs play respectably, but even more interestingly, it was sort of the first point where you know someone could demonstrably show that if you put the same program on faster hardware, it would actually do better. Right, it would actually get better, right? and that was a big hmm. breakthrough, right? Because we know just you know from uh, you know things like Moore's law, right, that the computers are getting faster and faster and faster, and uh, you know there's lots of evidence that that will continue even when Moore's law itself with you know semiconductors is is no longer true, but that that kind of exponential growth in computing power will just uh, keep continuing, and so this was sort of a big jump in capability, and that's where it continued for about another ten years until now they started applying neural nets to it. And again, there was another big jump in capability, and then just you know, a year or two after that, they figured out how to combine these two techniques, and that was where you had something like AlphaGo that could actually win the world championship. But if if you look at that history, you know what what I find striking is that both the you know the gap between kind of successive jumps, and then the improvement in performance, you know, as we discover each new technology for how to do it, you know, seems very unpredictable. Right. So it's very hard to know whether the next breakthrough is going to be you know, two years out or 20 years out. And it's very hard to know when that breakthrough comes, uh, how much better are the machines actually going to be. Right. So I look at things like language understanding. Does it seem like, though, they usually underestimate it's usually coming faster than they think? You know, we go back and forth. Right, You go through some period of history where uh, people are making rapid progress and you see all these predictions of, you know, in five years we're all going to be out of a job because the machines are going to be much smarter than all of us. And then we go through these other periods where it seems like there's very little progress and people become much more cautious in their predictions. And, you know, my sense, I, I tend to be much more cautious in my predictions just because I think that's more the norm, right? So I think, you know, what, what tends to happen is we make some breakthrough and then there's some rapid progress for a while and then things flatten out for a bit and, Again, you have to wait somewhat longer before you see the, the big breakthroughs. Are, are you, would you describe yourself as agnostic about whether the research you're doing is going to aid mankind or not, add, not aid your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren? Or do you really strongly believe that what you're doing is is going to be for the greater good. I strongly believe that what I'm doing will be for the greater good, right? So, and I, I do think about this. You know, my my wife, right? You know, kind of keeps me honest and thinking about issues like this, you know, often too. But you know, I do, you know, very much believe that you know, creating 
you know, something like, you know, commander data from Star Trek, you know, is something that eventually we can do and that that will only make our world a better place, right, when we actually understand how to do that. Um, yeah, if I felt like the work I was doing was likely to lead to, you know, the Terminator world, then I would not be doing the stuff that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the trick there, by the way, I think is that, you know, you need to think about how as these machines get smarter and more capable, you know, how do we make sure that their values, right, so the things that we tell them are good to do and not good to do, yeah. you know, kind of reflect the values that we have as humans. Right, so you're, trust, how, you're how trusting you in the other people that they're yeah. not going to say something, yeah, so this, teach something bad. Yeah, very much. And it's, it's a very hard problem, right, because, you know, you know, science fiction stories are full of examples where, you know, you, you try to just program the computers with very simple laws. So, like, you know, Asimov's, you know, three rules of robotics are and probably the most you know, famous and well-known, right? So these were rules like, you know, a, you know, a robot can do no harm to a human, you know, a robot must always obey a human, and a robot must do no harm to itself except where it would violate you know, one of those first two laws, uh, something like that. So I can't remember the whole, you know, exactly the, the wording, but, um, and then, you know, Asimov formulated those, and then he went on to write, you know, just countless stories where he showed how those laws break down in edge cases where you just, you can't really anticipate, uh, you know, how they're going to play out, right? And where the machines are able to interpret those laws in a very literal way, and so work around the intent of the laws, um, as opposed to interpreting them in the way they were, were meant. So it's a very hard problem. So the, the best answer is I've seen for how we can do this in a way that's, uh, you know, has some promise is that you don't try to program the machine directly, right, saying do this, don't do that. What you do is you say, machine, I would like you to act the way that I would tell you to act if I were as smart and as capable as you are of figuring out how to ask, you know, how to ask, you know, the right question, you know, how to, how to you know, give you the right values, right? So we basically turn the computer, we give the computers the problem of figuring out how we would want them to behave if we were smart enough to ask them the correct question about how to do that. Have you discussed this with your wife, with your children? I have. In fact, you know, this is this is a fun intersection of, you know, kind of the work I do in computer science with, you know, what my wife does as a rabbi that, you know, so I actually, I, I got to teach a class with, uh, you know, the, the rabbi that my wife works with, um, where we were looking at, you know, the intersection of these these issues. And, and you know, basically the, the proposal I put forward in that, that particular class was that you know things like Judaism, you know probably Christianity, you know, potentially Islam, right? That these these traditions of you know moral codes and religious beliefs provide uh, you know great seeds for teaching our computers, right? So I proposed in that particular class to a Jewish audience that we should basically teach our machines to be Jewish, right? <laughs> that if we taught them to be you know a good Jew. That then they could look at the whole history of Judaism. They could look at everything that the rabbis have written, you know, and everyone else, you know, through all. Give the an example of the good Jew. What? The good Jewish robot. The good Jewish, well, you know, like someone would it have a kippah or? No, 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 no. <laughs> but it would it would behave in ways that that you know Judaism would recognize as ethical ways of behaving, right? So you know, Maimonides, right? You know, with his golden rule of you know, you know, do not do unto. Your neighbor what you would not have him do unto you right so things like that i think you know the machine would study all this and it would internalize that and then hopefully it would act in that way right and that that's how we that is sort of an ethnocentric attitude isn't it uh well i think it's important when we teach our robots how to behave that we do have somewhat of an ethno 
you know, centric, you know, human centric attitude. Because I think our goal is no human centric. But you're saying the Judeo Christian. Well, and that philosophy yeah, is, is the proper one to teach our robots with. Uh, this this was my comments to a you know in a Jewish you know class of some sort. <laughs> so, you, know, you know, one of the things that you know my wife and I talk about on occasion, uh, particularly around the high holidays when she's you know in sermon writing mode and trying to figure out what to say. But you know, we talk about theology, right, and just kind of what our views of God are. And um, you know, my own theology is very much that God is basically a computer programmer, uh, you know, very much at the same kind of stage that we're at when we write programs. So, and, you know, what I mean by that, so I, I write a program, and typically I have some some sense of what it will do, but I often have some sense of what it won't do, you know, particularly in this kind of AI, you know, type stuff. You know, we can program these machines, and they can do things that are actually surprising, right, that we look at and we're like, wow, that's actually pretty amazing what it was able to do. But my sense... You know, too, is when I write a program that, you know, there's often bugs, you know, there's things that don't work quite right. Um, and that's part of the, the pleasure is sort of trying to figure it out and tune it and change it. So, um, yeah, so I like to think that God is like a computer programmer where, you know, he looks at the world and he's kind of amazed watching us at the things that we But can there's do. plenty of bugs. And there's definitely bugs, but, you know, he sort of looks to us to help in fixing those bugs, right, to help in solving the problems of the world and then understand how we make the world a better place. Yeah, this is this is an analogy that I'm often drawing on when I try to think about you know the relationship of us to God, and then ultimately the relationship that our machines will have to us you know, at the point if we do succeed in actually creating intelligent machines. Now, what does uh, your wife, my sister, think of this analogy? I think she finds it intriguing. I don't think it's quite necessarily her, you know, theology. Um, but I think I think she does like this, uh, and yeah, you know, I'll ask her more directly because I, I actually don't quite know exactly how to answer that question. Yeah, I don't know. i it, it is an interesting uh, juxtaposition. I really haven't. Uh, yeah, yeah, she is a yeah, great a computer right programmer she, in the sky. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you know, is the intelligent designer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think you know, as, as a rabbi, you know, I think trying to wrestle with you know these questions of what is God and what is our relationship to God. You know, particularly when you see bad things happen in the world, you know, I think it's it's challenging to actually come up with a theology that allows for a God, and you know, that also allows for bad things to happen, uh, you know, particularly to good people in the world. Um, and I think that's something we all wrestle with. You know, something we're always trying to figure out as we grow older. I'm fascinated how you woven in uh, the moral codes of Judaism and your work at Google and your work with artificial intelligence and the potential for good and evil in the world. It's fascinating. I, I certainly love it. I, mean, I find it's great to be married to a rabbi. It's great to be married to my wife, regardless of what she's doing. But yeah, I just I find that... Uh, you know, it, it's fun getting to think about how all these different facets of my life come together. In different okay, ways. so you seem like you're very optimistic about everything. What do you fear? You know, I fear... What do I fear? I guess I fear that, you know, one, I, I might be wrong, 
you know, so we might just find nefarious <laughs> uses for all these technologies that are are bad. But you know, more I fear that just we won't be wise enough as a species to really solve these problems, right, and figure out the best the best ways to use all this technology. You know, it just it, it may easily reach a point where um, you know we have the best intentions and just you know we do something something wrong. You know, and it's not for you know, lack of intelligence, it's just, you know, for lack of wisdom and really plotting the best, the best path forward. You know, so I worry about that. You know, I worry about how, um, at, at all scales, you know, whether it's just, you know, in our local town or in our country or in the world as a whole, of just, you know, how divided we often are as people, you know, how we often, you know, don't realize or don't, you know, reflect on all the things that pull us together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we spend, we seem to spend a lot of time, you know, focused on all of our disagreements, right, and all the things that political. are... Political. Yeah, political or just, um, you know, a lot of it manifests in politics, but, you know, some of it is just, you know, different outlooks on, you know, things that we value in the world, right? But I think that, that ultimately... People really do care about the same things. You know, that we all want everyone to be happy and you know well off, and we just we have different approaches of how we think we'll get there. But you know, I do I do fear that you know we often miss that, right? We often get too hung up on the things that are pulling us apart, um, and that's that's kind of sad, right? Because you know, I think we all kind of look at the you know Lloyd writes about a lot of this stuff you know in his his blog pieces, but you, know, you just you see the <laughs> you know kind of the things that that pull people apart. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's sort of sad to see, right? Because, you know, then you see other times where, you know, we put that aside and we're just, we're all pulling together and it's, you know, it's a wonderful feeling. Will a computer ever be able to enjoy baseball? Yes. Yes? <laughs> <laughs> Will it be able to enjoy something? I mean... Okay. Yeah, so, so, again, you know, this comes down to values, right? So, you know, the question, why do we enjoy baseball? Yeah, I think, so I think we enjoy it... Yeah, you know, multiple levels, right? So we enjoy it for the strategy. We enjoy it, um, you know, for the skill that it actually takes to do something. You know, that's that's hard. You know, especially if you've tried to you know, hit a baseball or something like that. But you know, I know for me, for example, what I enjoy, I enjoy the the way it connects me, you know, to you guys, you know, to other people, right? So that you know, for me, is really kind of what makes baseball, you know, an enjoyable thing. And and again, I, I very much feel that eventually we'll reach a point where our computers feel. Um, feel connected to us in the same way that we feel connected to each other. Well, they feel, feel they'll feel happy or sad or I I think they will, right? Or or if but then what separates them from a person then? Well, that's a question. You know, so like Alan Turing, right? You know, so this was you know his famous Turing test, right? Where he you know postulated what it meant to be intelligent. Um, you know, and so what he posed was you know basically the test that if if you talk to someone and you can't actually tell if they're human or not, then that's all that matters, right? So then you have to grant them that they're every bit as human as the people that you know are actually human, right? And and that that is, I think, my own sense, right? Is that, you know, at the point where the machines are able to convince us that they're feeling all the same things that we're feeling because we actually can't tell the difference, then we have to assume that they are. And so do you think... Can you imagine Orly falling in love with a machine? Yeah, sure. I mean, you've seen the movie Her. Have you? Have you seen the movie Her? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that's a very believable, you know, vision about where someday we'll be. Now, again, I, I think we're personally 
pretty far away from the point where you know computers can be like Samantha, you know, in that that movie. Um, but I don't think it's a completely unrealistic you know future for us to get to eventually. You know, you look at the world of Star Trek. That's like 300 years in the future, and you know, can we build something like Commander Data in 300 years? You know, and I think that's quite plausible. As we wind this up, is there something that we haven't covered that you'd like to cover regarding your work with AI? What's what? What are you most excited about? I, I mean, the thing that I'm personally most passionate about. You know, it was indeed going back to that very first program I ever wrote, you know, and getting something that can really carry on a conversation, uh, you know, in a very, uh, you know, empathetic way, right? So you think about, you know, just what it's like to have this kind of conversation like we're having right now or to, you know, talk with your, your spouse or your friend uh, just over a cup of coffee, just, you know, talking about what's going on in your life and hearing what's going on in their life. So that, that's my real passion, right, is to reach that point. I mean, point you want to take a machine to lunch. Uh, I'd love to be able to take a machine to lunch, <laughs> um, but only if they can carry on the same kind of conversation that you guys can carry on. Well, that's what right? I mean. Yeah. So you know, but at that point, yes, I think I think that'd be a very enriching thing. So. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everybody! First, we just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. It boosts our egos, and of course. Your ears are the reason we do this. But it would be great if you could subscribe and leave a review, as it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you soon.